Last week, the external pressures of the Jewish leaders had come upon the church. They they arrested uh, they they arrested the disciples and they put them in the they put them in prison. Um, and yet, we saw how God, in the midst of that, was still the sovereign King, the one who was ruling. And this week, we're going to look internally at life in the body. So, if you would turn with me in your bulletins or in your Bibles to Acts chapter six, we're going to be reading Acts chapter six, verses one. To seven. This is God's word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who, will, who we will appoint to this duty that we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would attend to your word, that you would take your word and impress it uh, upon us, that you would push it into our hearts and out into our lives, that we might uh, reflect you in this world. Uh, Lord, encourage us with the gospel. Show us Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Now, I think it's a fair assessment of our nation to say that we're in a period of soul-searching. That's a fair assessment. Uh, Personally, a day for me doesn't go by with the news that I'm not left groaning over the very deep and divisive wounds that, instead of healing, seem to only continue to grow deeper and wider each week. And while I've experienced a lot of my own sort of sense of hopelessness and helplessness as I think about, well, how can I affect change in my own country, uh, I remain hopeful. Uh, My hope, of course, is not rooted in some grand change for our nation. My hope is in Christ and His eternal kingdom. And I think our text uh, this morning uh, and and the book of Acts is all about the breaking in of that kingdom into this world. And I have great hope of what God is doing in this world. And as a church... I think we have an opportunity to show the world the kind of unity and love that is only possible because of the love shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can display the truly revolutionary power of the gospel to break down walls, to heal divisions and deep wounds as we come together to serve. Yet... And it's a, it's a big yet. The church is not immune to divisions such as those caused by economic, social, racial inequality, all the things that we experience in the world. And the church is often, in its own way, exacerbated 
and aggravated the problems of our culture and society. And this isn't simply an issue with regard to contemporary American life. This is something the church has wrestled with all the way back to the beginning. And we see that in our text this morning. But that doesn't remove my hopefulness. So what makes the church different from the world? How can I say with full confidence that as a church we have an opportunity to show the world what it means to be one and to love one another? Well, I think that's where the gospel comes in, right? It's only through the reconciling power of Christ. We are not by nature different from the world. We're not. We are made different through the service of Christ to us. And so we are called to act differently by our service to one another. The Lord told the people of God through Moses in the book of Exodus, You shall be, that's a declaration, You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Another way of putting that is we shall be to God a kingdom of servants. Servants of God and servants of one another. Priestly service to one another is what heals wounds, writes injustice, and displays the glory and the power of Christ in the world. So let's turn our attention to the text. I want to look at this call to priestly service. That's what I'm calling this. A call to priestly service in three parts. First, we are by nature uh, the problem, right? We are by nature self-serving, but we are made, we are recreated in Christ to be servants, to serve. And finally, because we are, we are able to serve because we have been served. By Christ. So, first, we are by nature self serving people. Now, it's interesting, we aren't given a time frame um, other than it happened in these days. You'll see in verse uh, 1 it says, Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We don't know when. Was it a week? A month? Do you remember all those passages we read in the book of Acts? How they they came together and had everything in common. And they they sold their property and they shared it with one another. Uh, So when did this rift start to happen? I, I, I don't know when it happened. When the sweet fellowship and union that they had started to break down. But pretty soon... Pretty soon. We're told that there was a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There are a few things we need to unpack here. First, who are the Hellenists and who are the Hebrews and who is this referring to? If you've been here throughout the series, you'll remember that when uh, people were coming to hear the apostles, that it was a mixed group of people from far away and people that were from Jerusalem. People that were part of the diaspora, or the the, the Jews that had over the course of history and various events throughout history had sort of spread out across the Mediterranean world. And now, generationally, they had grown up in a more Greco-Roman culture. And so, became more Greco-Roman. Their natural language would have been Greek, rather than Aramaic or Hebrew. 
And the Hebrews, on the other hand, were those that lived right there in Israel, in Jerusalem in particular here. Uh, and they were probably fluent in Greek because that was the common language. But they also, their common tongue, the tongue that they used day in and day out, would have been Aramaic, a close cognate of Hebrew. And so they would have known both Hebrew and Aramaic. And they likely spent the majority of their life uh, socially, culturally, within that context. And so there were two sort of different groups of Jewish people who came together in Jerusalem. They probably had their own synagogues, synagogues that spoke mainly in Greek and synagogues that spoke mainly in Hebrew or Aramaic. And you can remember that even after they became Christians, they didn't stop going to these places. They would go to the temple. They would go to the synagogues. They would listen to the word. Uh, it wasn't until later that they, they were sort of pushed out of the synagogues that they started to, to form their own sort of identity. But anyway, the, the situation was that they, they sort of separated into these various groups. There's a complaint there was clearly an injustice going on. The widows of the Hellenists were being overlooked in their daily distribution of food. Uh, like many cities, Jerusalem attracted those in need. And the synagogues and the temple was the forum for caring for the poor. We saw this, of course, with the temple, right? We had the, 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 the lame beggar who sat at the temple door receiving alms. And there's a particular concern with the oversight of widows within the Christian community. There must have been an overabundance. We, aren't, we don't really know why. Why widows were the ones that were highlighted here? We aren't given exactly the reasons. Um, maybe there just happened to be uh, many widows at the time uh, within these two groups. But the fact is that widows... Uh, the, the fact is that as the widows were being neglected uh, in the, or overlooked, this would have been deeply distressing to the apostles. Why would it have been so distressing? Um, well, that takes a little bit of going back in time to the Old Testament. But God, throughout Scripture, has a special place in His heart for the widows and the orphans in particular. Psalm 68.5 describes God as father of the fatherless, protector of widows. And in the Old Testament we see that he gets particularly angered, not only when they're neglected, but when they're abused. We see this in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking the word of the Lord to uh, the Israelites who were abusing the widows. It says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, like literally stealing from widows, that they may make the fatherless their prey. It was a distressing moment in the life of this early church. See, they were, in some ways, they were really radical in their care. We saw this earlier. They were radical. They were selling everything, having everything in common. And yet here in the distribution of things, there was a group of people who were being overlooked. How did this come to be? How did this start to happen? I think there are various reasons why this may have started to happen. One is they were growing in number quite rapidly. Um, and as that happens, things become less easy to manage. And so maybe there was a, a, an oversight. Nevertheless, 
I, I think that there are some negative things. You, you can sort of say, oh, they just forgot. But the reality was they were still paying attention to their own widows. It's distressing. The neglect of others. Now, you know, rarely, maybe sometimes in the church, this kind of overlooking is done in, with malice and it, uh, with uh, because they simply don't like somebody. You, you you don't care for somebody. You withhold good from them. That that can happen. But more often than not, it's simply selfishness and self-service. The Hellenist complaint was that they were overlooked. That was a charitable way of approaching the problem. They didn't assume the worst motives. They didn't assume that the, 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 the apostles and the disciples were doing it out of malice. They just simply said, you are being extraordinarily selfish in the way you're distributing the goods. One idiom in English that I, I just, I don't know why it bothers me. It just really bothers me, but it, it's one that we have. It's, it says, blood is thicker than water. Um, and if you're not a native English speaker, that's a really weird saying. Um, but it essentially means that, it, that your first loyalty is to your family. Or more broadly, to your people. Or maybe I'll use common parlance, your tribe. Right? That's a, that's, a, that's a very popular way of talking. Now, it sounds good on the face of it. Of course you're called. You're called to care for your family. I, as a father, have a particular responsibility to my wife and to my children, to my parents, to honor them. But this mentality often starts to slide into an, what I call an anti-gospel tribalism. No matter what, my tribe comes first. Selfishness. Self-service. The Apostle Paul reminds the Galatians who had a similar issue in the church that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. All heirs of God. Co-heirs with Christ. Of course, Paul wasn't saying that in the church all differences are obliterated. There's no difference between persons. But he was saying that there was no distinction in the family of God. There's a radical equality. We are all children of the Most High. We are all inheritors of the blessings of heaven. There is no place in the church for treating people differently based on their social or economic status, ethnicity or gender. We are one. And yet how easy it is to stick to our own. It's our nature to serve our own interests, to be self-servants. Sometimes it's subconsciously. We just, we just kind of fall into that mode. This is my people. I've got to care for them. Whatever about those people over there. It's in the air of the fall that we breathe. But the Gospel doesn't let that stand. And the apostles immediately addressed the issue with a call to service. This is my second point. We are made to serve. He remakes us and shapes us to serve. This is who we are. The text tells us uh, that the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, gathered all the disciples together to address the issue. And the, the solution is, is a really interesting one. Um, oftentimes when leaders face an issue, a problem, there's often two responses. One is, ignore it. 
bury your head in the sand, pretend like the issue isn't there, and ignore it. Nothing is more frustrating to somebody when their, their issue is ignored. The other way that leaders often respond responds is total control. Oh, the people are doing a terrible job. I'm just going to go in. I'm going to take over. If they can't get it done, I will. And the apostles could have said that. They could have stepped in and said, we're going we're to take this, this whole process over of how we distribute all the food. It's not what they do. The response of the apostles was quite different. First, they called all the disciples together. Now, we're not told who the all disciples is, but we know from previous texts that thousands and thousands of people had been coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that had been been believing. And so the question is, was it thousands and thousands of disciples all coming together as this massive congregational meeting? I don't know. I guess it's possible. Kind of like a big assembly. Maybe it was uh, the group of disciples that had been there from the beginning that were seen as somewhat leaders. We aren't told. But either way, it was all of them. And they came together. And the, and the apostles put it on them to choose men. Men that they would call to serve. They were called to address the problem. Secondly, the apostles understood that priestly service in the kingdom of God was more than just the distribution of food. That was an important aspect. But here it's really interesting. We're we're told that they were particularly tasked with prayer and ministry of the word, with the preaching of the gospel. Um, It's interesting, the word here, if we we look at... uh, Here in verse, uh, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This is the second time we've seen that word for service. Earlier it was, uh, they neglected the daily distribution. Um, These are the same words, the same cognate words in Greek, and they come from uh, a word that you might recognize. that is the word for deacon, diakonos. Or, uh, and here it's uh, a little bit different, but it's the same cognate word for uh, serving or ministering. So you notice that they, they talk about service here. It's not, it's not good that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. But then they go on and they say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will point to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the... Ministry, same word, same word that comes from uh, the Greek for deacon or diaconate or to serve. It's used over and over again. And I think what the apostles are, are pointing out here, or at least one thing that we learn, is that service in the church finds many avenues. One is service, physical needs, caring for the poor, distributing goods. And another way of service is prayer. Another way of service is proclaiming the Word of God. And, of course, we can think of a myriad of ways in which we are gifted to serve the church. But there's a particular way that they were concerned with here. That they, didn't, they felt, and I think were designated by God, to call to preach the Word and to pray. That was their, that, that, that was their calling. But they recognized, because of that, there was a desperate need for servers to serve uh, the food, to go out and care for the physical needs of the community. 
And they gave direction to the disciples to appoint seven men from among them. Of course, seven being a number of perfection in the Bible. It's a sort of a whole number or a round number. It's a, I think it wasn't without significance that they chose seven, that this would be sort of the number needed, if you, you might say it that way, the, the number of completion. Uh, they chose to, They were instructed to choose seven men. And we have a list of these men. Stephen. Now Stephen gets special recognition. He's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And I think Luke highlights him particularly because next week we're going to see Stephen. Newly ordained. Go out and lose his life for the sake of the gospel. Philip is also one who shows up later in Acts. And then there's uh, a, a, a group of people, Theni, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, or uh, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, and Prominus, and Nicholas from Antioch. Interesting about all these names is that they were all Greek names. They were all Greek names. Uh, and the last one, Nicholas from Antioch, was a convert, we're told. Significant. Here were the Hellenists crying out, Our widows are being neglected. You're overlooking them. And the disciples gather together and they say, We need people who can represent them, stand up and care for the needs. People of good repute, of godliness, who are filled with the Spirit, that are going to champion these widows. There were those who cared, set aside to care for the marginalized because they were able to identify with them. The text is very important to our understanding of the office of deacon. And I've yet to really talk about this up to this point because I didn't want any of us to dismiss the text as not relevant to you. Some of you would be like, oh, this is all about getting deacons. I can shut off my ears. Uh, There's a general principle that needs to be maintained. We are a kingdom of priests. That's what what the, the Old Testament passage that I read earlier from the book of Exodus said. We are all called to serve. Some in the church are given particular offices in order to serve and encourage service in others. But each and every one of us is called to serve. There's no excuse all of us together. And if there's ever a need that's not being met, it ought to be the cry of people to say, they're being neglected, and the church to rally to that situation and give aid where it's needed. Now, there's also a second thing. The text actually doesn't particularly say this is the institution of deacons. We later on in the book of Timothy, Paul, in the letter to Timothy, Paul addresses the role of the office of deacon. Here we have what I might call a proto-deacon. There's not a a specific office of deacon. It was somebody from among uh, the the disciples there that were probably doing both and. They were probably serving and ministering. We see this in both Philip and Stephen. They both were proclaiming the word of God and yet there is a Uh, 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 what I would call a pattern here that's really significant that that deacons are necessary to the life of the body for a lot of reasons as I think about ministry in the church uh, you know there is uh, four of us that are that are ordained elders me Joe Seth and John Uh, and there's a lot of work to be done in the life of the church and we simply 
can't do it all. I particularly have been called to to be a minister of the Word, to proclaim the Word to you, to serve you in that capacity, and to pray for you, and to administer the sacraments. I've been called to that task. Now, currently, we don't have any deacons. Um, And I would say that this text is is a timely text. As we think about looking forward to the future, as we think about what the church would be like if it had a a full complement of officers to help encourage service in the church, uh, what would it look like to have deacons? How much more work could we do? I can tell you from personal experience, I hate dropping balls. hate it, but I do it. I'm sure Seth and John and Joe have dropped balls because there's just so much work to be done. So what I would encourage you to do as you think about this passage and what it means to serve, I want you to pray that the Lord would raise up for us deacons that would help us as a church become a serving church, to exhibit that, that love of Christ towards the marginalized, towards the poor, towards the other. So that as a church, we might show to the world a picture of the gospel. Right? That's, that's what I'm talking about. We have, uh, I have a deep hopelessness of our, for our country. Isn't I, maybe I'm a cynic. Maybe that's just me. You might have great hope in America. I don't. But I have great hope in the Christ. And I have great hope in His church and their ability to, pro, to, to show the world what it looks like to break down walls serve, to care for one another. That's our call. To be a deacon. All of us, in the basic sense, to be ministers one to another, and particularly to the poorest among us. Well, I want to close here. That's an impossible task in some level, isn't it? We all struggle to not be selfish, to not want to just take care of our own. Sometimes it's all we have the capacity to do. This is where I want to remind you. Our service is born out of Christ's service to you. After the apostles prayed and laid their hands on these seven men, ordaining them for service, we're told that the Word of God spread number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly. That's how the, the, the passage opens and closes. In the midst of sort of the messiness of, of, of this like potential divisive situation, we're told that the church is still growing. God is still at work. His kingdom is still coming to its end, its purposes. It's, it's moving forward. And it begins with this picture of growth and it ends with this great growth. Why? Not only did it grow, but, but, but we're told that priests start coming into the complement of the believers. Why? How does this happen? Was it because now they had all these helpers and servants and they were structurally able to make it work and everything was running more smoothly? I think in part. But ultimately, it was because of the one who called himself the servant of all. 
the one who is the great high priest, who though he was completely other than us, he was the one who was in heaven and enjoyed fellowship as the triune God who had fellowship with the Father and had fellowship with the Spirit and enjoyed all the glory of heaven. He came to earth and became like us and dwelt among us and he served us. And he ultimately served us by giving his life for us. By hanging on a cross. Christ's service to us as our high priest and sacrifice changes us. It makes us servants. Those who, apart from the grace of God, are self-servers. Changes us and makes us servers of others. It's interesting, this little note about priests. It's a really curious statement, isn't it? A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why, why, why would he, why would the Luke put that in here? What, what purpose did it serve? I think it's a reminder of what God is making us into. A kingdom of priests called to serve. That's what we are. We have a master who served us, laid down his life. And so, just like our master, we lay down our lives for one another in service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace to us, that you, as servant of all, laid down your life for us, as our great high priest, as the one who was willing to enter into a world that was completely unlike his own, messy and broken and fragile and frail. And yet you did that to identify with us and to serve us, to love us and to save us. Lord, we ask that you would make us servants one of another, that you would help us break down walls and barriers, that we would see those that are neglected, the widows and the orphans, those that we consider other. And Lord, we ask, we pray that you would raise up for us deacons to assist in the work in organizing the service of your church. We thank you that you are at work. We thank you that we can picture the kingdom of God to the world. And Lord, we pray that it would be a place that would be attractive. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.